Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 201. On today's show, we talk about looting and its repercussions. Let's dig a little deeper, but not into this show because it's had a rocky, rocky history. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome to the Archaeology Show. Rachel, how's it going? Great. We're traveling. <laughs> it's been so long. I know. So this is going to be a little bit... Uh, I'm going to mention... We always mention where we're at yeah. because mm-hmm. I feel like our listeners... I'm just projecting this onto them. That yeah, they that, enjoy that they care, these that they follow along yeah, with us. But nobody's currently <laughs> sitting here writing an Apple podcast review that's angry that says, get to the archaeology. <laughs> Stop talking about random crap yeah. in your lives. We don't care about it. So today, as we're traveling across the country, and we had to, to delay a little bit for some upgrade issues and some maintenance issues, and because of that, we are currently driving across the country, so yep. we're trying to record, and we're going to do a segment at each one of our like bigger stops. stops. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. we're going to do a stop right now. We're at the Tennessee Welcome Center. Yeah. Just coming on from Mississippi into Tennessee, for anybody that wants to, to look that up and, mm-hmm. and see what we're doing, we're basically headed to I-40, and then we'll be on that for uh, 1,500 miles. <laughs> yes, because we're trying to get to... In between Flagstaff and Phoenix, basically, we're yeah. going to be eventually near, yeah, we'll be, near Sedona. We'll so. be near Sedona. Yeah. Basically, once you get on 40, it's like, go straight for a yeah. thousand miles <laughs> Just like, and then turn left. Just stay on this interstate. Yeah. Well, until you hit a city, because usually you loop around those. But yeah, yeah. mostly just stay on 40. Right, yeah. right. So anyway, we are going to have an interesting show today. We've got themed I don't want to say news articles. I guess they're news articles, but yeah, yeah, themed articles. And right now, I will let Rachel steal the show. (laughs) Oh, so bad. (laughs) I was trying to figure out how to fit that in because I thought about it. You should have said loot the show. Uh, But that just doesn't doesn't, doesn't It doesn't work. I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that was good. That was really good. I almost didn't get it for a second. I had to like think like, what does he mean by steal? (laughs) But what we're talking about today is effectively stealing artifacts because... And we've talked about this before. Sometimes topics just sort of cluster in in the news cycle for some reason. And recently there has been a bunch of articles, probably in the last like month, month and a half-ish, of just different stories about different lenses into the looting world of artifacts. Yeah, this one, first one we're going to talk about is from the Washington Post. And listen, quick little hack for you guys out there. So the oh, Washington yeah. Post, if you're not a subscriber, I mean, you don't, I mean, sure, subscribe to the Washington Post if you like what they have. But mm-hmm. sometimes they get real annoying if you just want to see like one thing. You just want to like read the story real quick. Real quick. And I understand yeah. it's somebody's work. They need to be paid for it. But uh, mm. sometimes you I just. Think with the Washington Post, it's even a free account. But like, I don't want to go through the trouble yeah. of making a free account, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, if you're on an Apple device, I don't know how this works on Android, but go up into your URL and put it in reader mode. Mm-hmm. And it will basically, reader mode basically takes away all the ads and stuff around the edge and coincidentally takes away their sign-in page. Yes. So you basically just get the pictures in the article. It doesn't work on every website. It doesn't. Like New York yeah. Times 
because I think New York Times wants you to pay for their content, it doesn't work. Yeah, you and can't that, block it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, anyway, but for this article, that's a great little workaround to not have to make an account to read the article. Well, it's a good it's a good workaround for anybody using an Apple device, especially on like a phone or a tablet yeah. where you've got limited real estate. Just put it in reader mode and you yeah. can just get rid of all that stuff. Get rid but, of all the ads and all yeah. the nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, this article is called Oscar White Muscarella, archaeologist who exposed looted artifacts and fakes dies at 91. And this was written by Michael S. Rosenwald, again for the Washington Post, on December 29th, 2022. Yeah, and they were featuring Dr. Muscarella because he was kind of a pioneer in really examining the provenance of artifacts at the Met, where he worked. And provenance is basically the... Chain of custody. The chain of custody for an artifact. So you know that it came from... A legitimate source rather than from a looter or a shady dealer or something like that. Yeah, I don't know how they call it when it's you know the you know the history from it sitting in your hand or you're looking at it or something like that to when it was either created and or found. Mm-hmm. But for the demonstration purpose, I'll just call that 100% providence, right? Like we know everything about mm-hmm. it. So, so I'm looking at it at say a museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, mm-hmm. and. They know where they bought it. That person knows where they got it. That mm-hmm. person knows where they got it. That person knows where they got it. And they got it from a willed family member. And the family member had a cousin who made it. Yeah. Or found it in Egypt when they looted it. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's a point where it'll get to... It probably will get back to looting at some point. But there, I think there's a point where when it's as far enough in the past where it's not... Yeah, breaking a, a law or a rule or something like that. That's not necessarily true, but there are ways for it to have good provenance, basically, even for very, very old artifacts. Right. So, in this case, Dr. Oscar White Muscarella started working for the Met in 1964, and it was a really, really hard time because there were some shady practices in the world of acquiring artifacts, mm-hmm. even for a place like the Met, even for a museum as big and as amazing as the Met. And occasionally, artifacts with questionable provenance were bought from disreputable dealers. Yeah. It happened, even at the Met. So, I mean, I think it was just like sometimes curators would just get so focused on creating the exhibit they wanted to create and they would kind of turn a blind eye to some things. Or I'm not really sure how it it would get to that point. Because even in the 60s and 70s, like... Stolen artifacts were not okay. No, no, no. But in the early to middle parts of the twentieth century, I mean, these museums and the people who were, you know, the gentleman scholars who were the ones going out to these sites that had the money that just wanted to go out and do something because they were bored and had the money to do it. Before there were like, you know, there were real archaeologists obviously mm-hmm. in the early twentieth century, the early nineteen hundreds, but there wasn't that many. Yeah, right? there wasn't that many scholars of archaeology. Let's see, there was Indiana Jones, and then <laughs> oh there was God. the Nazis, but. <laughs> Aside from them, yeah. you know, nobody was wow. really doing this. Strike everything you just said from the record, please. We, that is not accurate. Uh, I know. So, anyway, so there wasn't a lot of people doing this, and it's it all archaeology itself started out with people again, the gentleman scholar kind of person mm-hmm. and that would go out and say, you know, I want to go dig in Egypt because I can, and I'm interested in it, and then mm-hmm. they would take all their finds. You know, to them, it's it's like I can leave all this stuff here. 
to the quote unquote savages. And, uh, you know, that's what they would think about them as they, they, they weren't high British society. Yeah. So they'd bring them back to the British Museum. They'd bring them back to New York, to the Met, yeah. to the Met, to the two other museums, not just the Met, but to, to museums worldwide. Yeah. As long as it wasn't where it was found. That's where all the cool stuff was. Yeah. And we wanted to take it back. So they can have this prestige. And yeah. that's just what was happening. And and it was, again, sometimes it's not questionable that it was looted. Like, the, the, like they just didn't call it that. Yeah. <laughs> we call it that now. Well, it was it was looting, though. It was just that... It was definitely looting. People, they just didn't think it was. They didn't, they didn't care because the... Yeah. The culture that the artifacts were taken from just wasn't their viewpoint wasn't taken into consideration. In but those people times. use that argument now, right? Yeah. Like you see, you get on these artifact hunter, and the, the, as soon as they put hunter in the word, yeah, you get on these artifact hunter Facebook groups and websites, yeah, where people are just going around on what they say is private land every single time, which is legal in the United States. Mm-hmm. But I question whether or not it's always private land. Mm-hmm. But let's just leave it at that. But they go out there and you look at their little videos and stuff, and they're just they're just crunching out some. Um, some dirt in order to get these projectile points without looking at the the yeah. provenience, which is different from provenance, which provenience is how is it situated in where in, it's yeah. located right now. Mm-hmm. But they don't care about that. They don't care anything around it. They just want to take it. And they do that because they say two things. One, archaeologists steal artifacts and put them in museums and boxes where we can't see them. <laughs> and two, I will get much more enjoyment out of this with my friends and family if I put it up on my mantle or I sell it and I my bank account gets more enjoyment out of it. Yeah. So It's just like a, it's an archaeology of things rather than people and cultures. And I think that like for the last 20, 30, 40 years, archaeologists and anthropologists and other experts have been really working to change that idea and that philosophy. And it's been a slow, slow process. Yeah. But doc- Dr. Muscarello was definitely one of the first in the museum world to start pushing back. And he got like really publicly critical of the Met in 1973 when they bought a 2,500 year old Greek vase for $1 million. Mm-hmm. Now, you might not think that's too crazy, but the dealer that they bought it from is a guy who was named Robert E. Hecht Jr. He's a controversial dealer who was later indicted in Italy on looting charges. Wow. However, the statute of limitations ran out before they could actually like go through the trial process. Yeah. So that name might sound familiar to you, and that is because we've actually talked about that guy before, Robert Hecht Jr., on an episode of TS, episode 165, because looting always grabs my attention, and yours too, I think, but yeah. when we're looking at articles in the news, because I just love to see like justice done and artifacts being returned to the cultures that they were taken from and the countries and the people. So it always grabs my attention. And we actually did talk about this guy. There was some other repatriated artifacts that he was involved in the deal that happened back in the 90s or 80s or whenever it was. So we'll link to that episode in the show notes if you want to go hear more about the shady things that, that he was accused of being involved in. Yeah, I've been interested in looting for a long time and it was probably god 10 plus years ago now that i wrote a blog post called an open letter to arrowhead hunters oh my god that's right i forgot about that it's still i just got a comment on it a month ago did you really it still gets comments yeah it's mostly people who are like you're stupid get out of here yeah i can have whatever i want yeah who cares who originally made it and who what 
what people it belongs to. Blah yeah. blah blah. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes too, well, so you can go leave your own angry comment. <laughs> and uh, see or what maybe share it to all the people you know who have artifact collections on their mantles. Right, but keep in mind, I did write it like twelve years ago, oh, so yeah, I don't that's even know true. what it says yet. <laughs> I'm sure it's all still very valid. So though. you'll link to it if you are still okay with the content. Yeah, I'll check it out first. <laughs> then, then we'll link to it. <laughs> Anyway, so this vase that Dr. Muscarella was involved in, or that he was suspicious of, was appraised by other museums at only being worth 500000 even though they paid a million for it. Mm-hmm. And he pointed that out to the Met officials, but the officials at the time that he was talking with, I'm trying to be very careful not to like <laughs> accuse the current Met of doing anything wrong, because I think that there's a lot of people there who are very conscious of this and these problems, and they are working very hard not to have artifacts that have bad provenance. So this is, again, back in the 70s. Anyway, the Met officials brushed him off, brushed off his suspicions and said that we should just be enjoying this this vase for the beautiful piece of art that it is and not worry about where it came from or anything like that. Right. And obviously that's not the right way to look at artifacts. You need to know more about them than just the fact that they're beautiful and where they came from. Um... And he kept pushing, and eventually Italian officials got involved, and they managed to find out that, yes, it was a looted artifact from Italy. It had bad provenance. Right. And just in case you're wondering whether or not you know anything came of it, after three decades, three decades, yeah. that vase was finally returned to Italy in 2008. No idea what it, why it would have taken three decades when the initial suspicions were brought up in the mid seventies, but yeah, two thousand eight, right. two thousand eight, yeah, crazy. So Dr. Mascarella was really just sounds like a really cool guy. He wasn't afraid of battling his own employer, the Met, his colleagues, other museum officials, everybody, and you know he did get like a little bit ostracized for it. The, yeah. His peers, the people he worked for, they weren't always happy with him. That's bold, especially kind of a dream career for a lot of people Mm -hmm. would be working for an organization like that and to just get there and you know say you know what you guys are all stupid and (laughs) your uh, practices are bad (laughs) yeah but you you know you can't do anything about it because i'm right yeah because in fact they tried to fire him three times and he pushed back every time with lawsuits and they basically he won the lawsuits yeah they sided with him and he stayed and he didn't he didn't care about being there and like haha like well like i just can't imagine what kind of person would even want to work in that environment he must have felt very strongly about his convictions as far as this went and he wanted to be there to do better in the future when you're working in a place like a museum you're an archaeologist you're somebody who's in what's well known as like a passion field Mm -hmm. you know you often don't do this for the money or the fortune and glory and uh and all that stuff but you know so somebody somebody working at a you know at a warehouse or something for 12.50 an hour might not they they might see some injustices going on but it's not like, really peace. worth it for them to do anything about yeah. it right they're not going to fall on their sword because they're not going to hire a lawyer when they get fired for making waves right. because it's just not worth it they can't yeah. afford it they can go find another warehouse yeah. job somewhere else that's better but, but this guy is really passionate about what he's doing he doesn't care if people there hate him yep. he's got supporters i'm sure i'm sure and yeah. it's just uh it's admirable to see some that you know whether he was always right or wrong doesn't really matter it's admirable to see somebody stick to their guns and be like listen you guys and and three different times they tried to fire him and he's like nope 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 (laughs) and and he never he never backed down from his position on looted artifacts and things needing to have good provenance he even wrote a book in 2000 that was 
that was focused on looted ancient Near East artifacts. And he cataloged 1,250 <laughs> suspicious artifacts in museums and collections around the world. So not just at the Met, but yeah. like around the world. So, I mean, it was a big focus for his entire career yeah. to make sure that pe- artifacts that were bad, bad provenance were called out and people yeah. just didn't get away with that. Indeed. Yep. Yeah. Well, he died at the age of 91 on November 27th, 2022. So just a couple months ago. And he, I mean, I just think what an amazing guy, right? He left a legacy of pushing back against the system and holding the Met accountable while he was there. And yeah. I think that every institution really needs people like that because I think it's so easy to get so focused on a goal that you might forget right. how you're getting to that goal. And if you don't have people who are willing to check you, then that that's a problem. So good for Absolutely. him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good for him. And like I said, whether you think you're right or wrong, if you doesn't really matter. Stick to your convictions mm-hmm. and you know, until you're until you, you do find out that maybe you are wrong. You know, then <laughs> well, don't stick to that. Yeah, don't but, stick to that. Like be willing to change, yeah, obviously. Be willing to admit that, you know, <laughs> hey, oh shit, no, you know. Yeah. Don't but, be what Graham Hancock says we are is people unwilling to change. Yeah, exactly. You know, you have to be able to change if the evidence says to. But exactly. Yeah. And real quick, we are linking to that blog post I wrote. Uh, I, I found the link and I put it in the show notes. And the last comment was from somebody named Aaron two months ago. And these I can't read any of these comments because they're paragraphs and paragraphs of text. <laughs> uh, but he did disagree with me. Yeah. And but I would say, you know, I I have over almost three hundred blog posts in this series, and I kind of stopped writing in that blog. Uh, when it stopped being cool to write, write blogs. Well, yeah, <laughs> wait, sorry, that was mean. Write a blog if you want to, but right, right, but. <laughs> You know, when I started podcasting, I couldn't really do both, and I was covering the same things. And I was like, well, okay, I'm just going to cover this. I have had thoughts almost daily about turning a lot of our podcasts into blog posts. Mm -hmm. So it's a written form of the podcast, not a transcript, but just like, hey, here's what we talked about. Like, really, really, really expanded show notes, Mm -hmm. just to keep this going. But anyway... I've got 14 likes on this post and 29 comments. I don't think there's 29 comments on the entire blog. Yeah. Right? Like, like I don't think, no, like, nobody comments on blogs. <laughs> nobody comments they on comment, blogs. I got yeah. a lot of comments on, like, Twitter and Facebook where I'd post these things, but nobody like, goes to the website and comments. Mm-hmm. But since this stuff isn't being posted anymore and it's clearly searchable, mm-hmm. then, you know, I'm still getting some hits on it. So One thing I would say about comments and emails and other things that we get is, like, the longer the comment or the email, the more likely it is somebody who is on the wrong side of yeah. of whatever it is that they're disagreeing they're with us. What they're to yeah, do. they yeah. are. They're like heavily into justifying. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of just like skimming back through this. It's very well written. It's good. It's oh. well organized. You it's, are you uh, like giving yourself a little pat on the back? Like I'm 2012, Webby gets a little pat on the back it's right now. Stuff here. <laughs> so it was actually April 30th, 2013. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice, so nice. not as long ago as I thought. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, with that, we will take a break and come back and see what the Spanish police found. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 201 of the Archaeology Show. And last time in segment one... 20 minutes ago, we were at the Tennessee Welcome Center. <laughs> now we are on I-40 West on the eastern end of Oklahoma at the Oklahoma Welcome Center. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the same day. Same day. Just a lot of driving in between. A lot of driving in between. <laughs> yeah. It, to be honest, Tennessee was like four minutes of it was. driving. Yeah. And then we crossed all of Arkansas and mm-hmm. then just 20 miles back crossed into Oklahoma. So. Yeah. Yep. So w- welcome to our road trip. You're with us. So. There you go. And, <laughs> and we're not doing this because we're carting around a whole bunch of looted artifacts and planning on selling them. Oh, no. Definitely not. <laughs> so. You might do that if you were, but of course you'd be crossing state lines and that's yeah. a bad idea. You know what? Just don't loot. Just don't loot. Just let's don't just, do it. Let's just go just don't do that. It. Let's not. So the Spanish police find hundreds of archaeological artifacts at two homes. An article from The Guardian written by Ashifa Kassam. Yeah. And this was obviously the second article in a recent time frame that happened to do with looting so yeah. i was like okay that's weird but all right let's let's look at it so the article itself is like really short there's not a whole lot of meat there there's just a couple paragraphs it's more like a announcement of police activity in yeah. this area right so but what i thought was really interesting about it is that there's there's different ways to loot artifacts and there's also different ways to get in trouble for looted artifacts and this in this case it's inheritance that is playing part of a role here so let me explain when a family member passes away and leaves artifacts to an individual or an organization there's still a responsibility for the inheritor to verify the provenance and you and I had a spirited discussion about this and like <laughs> <laughs> how far that responsibility goes. What are you doing with the things? Blah, blah, blah. So there is like a lot of gray area here, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you have a family member that you know was, say, an art or antiquities collector, like like they did this kind of thing, mm-hmm. then if you inherit a bunch of stuff from them, you're probably going to want to make sure that the stuff you got was kind of on the up and up, was yeah. legit, right? Maybe maybe even just for your own insurance sake, you're going to have this have this stuff evaluated yeah. if you're going to have it in your home. And to do that, you're going to have to have it appraised. And once you have it appraised, if the person doing that is, is a reputable appraiser, mm-hmm. they're going to want to know what the provenance is because that affects its value, mm-hmm. right? And if you find out that, you know, you got something from mom, mom got it from grandma, and grandma bought it off the street, which happened to be stolen from another family, and it's been missing, and catalog is missing yeah. for the last hundred years, well, you might have an issue you on your You could hand. get in trouble with I don't yeah. know what the statute of limitations on goods taken from, like... A family because that family needs to prove the provenance as well. Yeah, like a hundred years ago, it's like right? Two sides of it. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. like, what is the statute of limitations on something that was taken from there? Like, if somebody goes and steals the Mona Lisa out of the Louvre, I don't think there's a statute of limitations on that. I yeah. think that in two hundred years, the Louvre gets that back if yeah. you stole it today. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But if it's stolen from a family. I, I don't know. I think it's going to depend on where you're at, who the people are, the region. Like, there's just so many factors that are going to go into dealing with something like that. Yeah. So let's talk about what exactly happened in this situation. The story begins when authorities in Spain were tipped off about a home in the province of Alicante containing ancient human skeletal remains. 
So, of course, they had to go verify when they got a tip like that. And the raid turned up bone fragments that a local archaeologist determined to be between 4,000 and 5,000 years old. Right. So, ancient remains indeed. <laughs> there was no documentation for the bones, so they were deemed to be illegal, basically. Yeah, just a quick thing here, just a pause. Like, if you get a piece of art from grandma Kay. or something like that that's fine that's cool you just like put Fig- it up yeah, you know put it up whatever you don't fine. have to go nuts about it but yeah. if she gives you a skull and a whole yeah. bunch like a box of bones <laughs> yeah like you need to be worried immediately <laughs> and probably contact somebody to help you figure out what like, to first do with off, those like where's grandpa second <laughs> what, what where does all this go yeah be concerned immediately because i'll tell you what telling the difference between modern bones and by modern i mean any time in the last like 20 30 50 years yeah. And ancient bones is an expert needs to do that because right. you're not going to be able to look at those bones and be able to tell when they're from. Yeah, unless they're fossilized, they're going to look identical. Yeah, we it, don't we haven't changed at all in five thousand no, years. No, but there are ways for people to tell, yeah. and you need an expert to do that. Right. So anyway, so this this guy who had these these bones with no documentation. I get the impression that he was trying to save his own skin a little bit, and he collaborated with the police, and he sent them to another home. No, no, wait. The way that went was, wait, you've got bones. Wait, wait, he's got a lot more than I do. You should go see this guy. (laughs) You think I've got a lot. Yeah, yeah, the age-old turn on your buddy to save yourself, so... Anyway, he sent him to another home that was supposed to have more stuff, and it, it did. There was a much larger collection of 350 artifacts that ranged from Bronze Age mills to parts of a Roman loom and Phoenician amphorae. And also, in addition to those larger pieces, there was nearly 200 bone fragments. And again, there's no documentation for any of those items in this home. When the inhabitant of the home was questioned, he told the police that he had inherited all of these objects after the death of a relative. So that's where this whole inheritance thing comes into the story. I'm going to use that for pretty much everything. Like, (laughs) where did all these, not that I have this, but if the circumstance ever comes up, where did all this cocaine come from? I inherited this from my, you know, uncle. Yeah, it seems like a really flimsy argument. And... (laughs) In this case, I think that there might be some lying involved. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure that this person is completely innocent of I think knowing. There might be. Yeah, I mean, I saw pictures from the home, and there's like this. These items are on display, and they have little labels in front of them of what they are. So, like, yeah. I'll, I guess unless that's from the police, but it looked like it was like taken in the home of the person. So it's hard to say. It is hard to say, but. Either way, I find it really hard to believe that the person who inherited these items, I definitely believe he inherited them, but I find it hard to believe that he didn't know anything about the looting that was taking place in order to obtain these artifacts. Right. The police found several notebooks containing handwritten notes believed to have been written by the deceased relative, documenting the exact location where the items were found. Well, that's cool. You get a little bit of context of where the artifacts were found. So maybe experts can piece together what they are, where they came from, and maybe even figure out a value of them, which I think is helpful for purposes of prosecution if they decide to go that route. Right. So anyway, the moral of this story is beware the inheritance of ancient items. And we are talking specifically to you, arrowhead hunters and metal detectorists. I know you're listening. (laughs) Now, there are some rules or laws, I guess I should say, that do protect you depending on what country you live in. But Mm -hmm. if we're talking about the United States, 
you know, you can you definitely can pick stuff up that you find metal detecting, right? Mm-hmm. And some metal detectorists, they just like to find stuff. I, I'm pretty sure I saw an article not too long ago about a guy who found what was clearly like a diamond wedding ring on a beach somewhere mm-hmm. in Florida, I think, like in the last month or so. And he put it on Facebook and actually tracked down the owner. Yeah, which yeah. is really awesome. And I think that that is super great. Yeah. And not everything that a somebody who's metal detecting finds is considered an ancient artifact that would be looting. Mm-hmm. But if you're in an unknown archaeological site, then that's where you need to be careful because there's a lot of them along the the water edges yeah. where a lot of metal detecting happens. But so okay, this really got like my my brain thinking about different scenarios how inheritance can play into Looting, if yeah. at all, right? So I have some hypothetical examples, and I'll read them to you, and you can give me your opinion, and we'll just kind of go from there. Okay. Let's say you have a ranch containing Grandpa's Arrowhead collection. It's also found to have a human skull in that collection after he passes away. The ranch has been passed down to grandchildren who didn't even know about any of it, really, and definitely sure. not about the skull. But they don't do anything about it. They just move into the ranch and... Nothing happens until local authorities are tipped off about the fact that they have a skull in their Arrowhead collection. So I don't think anything's going anything's to happen because if you're talking about Grandpa's Ranch in Montana, the local <laughs> authorities also have arrowheads and skulls on their mantles. <laughs> right, right. So because they grew up that way. <laughs> so the yeah. old boys network is going to protect them, is what you're <laughs> right, saying. <laughs> right. But no, seriously though, if I mean if you've got if you've got something like that, I, I would just say when it comes to artifacts. And when I say artifacts, I mean non-human remains artifacts, because human remains are also artifacts if they're Mm -hmm. ancient, if we're speaking strictly about them. Mm -hmm. But artifacts that are non-human remains, and they were found on your property, I mean... You own them. Ethically, ethically, they belong to the native people who Mm -hmm. were historically part of that property, who were probably still living in the area. Legally, they belong to you, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, unless there's something special in your area, your county, your state, but generally in the United States, if it's on your property, they belong to you. Mm -hmm. If you're the owner of the Yellowstone Ranch and you have hundreds of thousands (laughs) of acres or hundreds of acres, I don't know how much they have, but it's a lot, Mm -hmm. then... Anything you find there is technically yours. You want to be a good steward of the land and a good friend of the people, though, you might try to return some stuff to the local Native Americans yeah. that you know have lived there for well before your family lived there. Mm-hmm. So, But if you've got human remains, it's not really legal or ethical to keep that in any way, shape, or form, regardless right. of who said it is. You know, yeah. I mean, even if the Native Americans in the area were like, yeah, I don't know, it's not my grandpa, mm-hmm. you can have it, you probably still shouldn't like have it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter that you inherited it. You still have that in your possession. And therefore, you have the responsibility to do something about that and alert the appropriate authorities or whatever. And the reason I did throw in the skull on purpose in this example, because I do know that, like, if you find a projectile point on your own property, then, yeah, it does belong to you. It might not be the best way to handle that because you could have a really significant site below the surface that you might want to, you know, bring in experts on. But... It happens, and it's not illegal. So, But like we said, while they are artifacts, human remains don't necessarily fall in that same category. It's not necessarily legal for you to have those of any age. No, and you don't yeah. know that they're ancient. Even right. if you find it in a cave or something, it still might not be ancient. Yeah. I watch enough true crime to know that people will do a lot of crazy stuff to a body they're trying to dispose of. So, Yeah, and if they're not ancient, I mean, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Yeah, so... so- 
basically be very careful about bones. And also, if it's human or not, it's not always obvious, too. Yeah. So, like, it's just better to err on the side of caution when it comes to bone fragments in your grandpa's inherited collection. Right. <laughs> okay, so next hypothetical example I have is Mama Metal Detectorist pass away. And her children find a bunch of, quote unquote, cool shit in her house. They don't know where it came from, but they put it on display in their own homes. And at some point, there's a tip off and authorities are alerted to them having things in their home. Right. So, again, if it's not human remains, I probably just would be like, yeah, I got this from my mom. And more than likely, authorities are never going to be tipped off unless it's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and you get some shady neighbor or friend that's like what is going on with this stuff and because i mean if it wasn't yours and you inherited it from your mom you probably don't have a lot but even if you do have a lot and you've got them displayed in like shadow boxes and cases because mm-hmm. she had them that way or or you're you know somebody did then yeah somebody may say something and somebody mm-hmm. might be like some some uppity archaeologist friend of yours might be like hey <laughs> you know i'm gonna tell the blm or somebody <laughs> you know, depending on who they're talking to yeah because it really depends on the property again like if she lived in an apartment and couldn't yeah. possibly own the land that she found the things on then you're getting into grayer area but also but. if it's not something that you're passionate about directly mm-hmm. and it and you really don't care about it like it's not sentimental to you because your mom collected it mm-hmm. you have other stuff from her then maybe like look for a local cultural resource management firm. You can try that. Look under the words environmental, archaeological, mm-hmm. or cultural, mm-hmm. and you can see if there is one around there, and maybe they can take a look at it for you. They may not because you know they're paid to do work, and you're probably not going to pay them. Mm-hmm. But also, if you have a university in town with an archaeology department or an anthropology department, they may not call it archaeology. Then call them up. Don't bring all your stuff there. Yeah. Call them up and say, hey, I inherited this collection. Can someone come check it out for me? I don't don't say you want to value it because yeah. they won't do that. No. But come tell me a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. And if it's something you don't care about and they're pretty excited and they can use it as like a teaching collection or something like that, then go there. And then I would say also, and it, your routes of this, I'm not putting these in any sort of precedence. No. Right? There's no order for these. These are just your various just routes options. that you can do. Your other option is if you live near a, or you also live near where the collection came from. Like if you Mm -hmm. live in Montana and your collection came from Oklahoma, don't call your local Native American tribe. No. Because you have Cherokee artifacts. Yeah. (laughs) You don't have, you know, local Paiute artifacts or something like that, or Shoshone or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You don't have those. Um, But if you live in the local area where those were inherited from, then I would say try to contact your local tribal office Mm -hmm. if there is one available Mm -hmm. and, you know, see if they're see if they're interested mm-hmm. in, uh, in repatriation. And the other side of the artifact collecting, too, is that it might not be Native American. It could be historical oh, objects, yeah, sure. too. It could be bottles. It could be bottles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bottles are a big one. People don't yeah. think about looting bottles, but but it is looting, technically. So, in that case, I think it, talking to your local historical society or even like local museum, if you've got something something that's history, and especially people that are really focused on local the local yeah. area, those are the type of people who would be interested in helping you figure out what you have and if it's okay to have what you do. And trust me, the legalities behind bottles and stuff are way way less stringent because nobody honestly really cares unless you yeah. stole unless they were really stolen from a particular yeah. collection but yeah chances are i mean i hate to say this but chances are you more than likely can just sell those if you don't want them a lot of Somebody places will buy do them. it's antique not, stores might take them yeah if it was found on public land you have to be very careful about that but it's almost impossible to prove that yeah so 
I would say be a good person, but, you know, don't worry yourself too much about that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go to the next segment and our next location. And I am not going to worry myself about those things, but I'm going to worry myself about these people coming into the rest area the wrong direction. I know. They keep circling How us. Why are they circling us? Yeah, That's super I don't weird. Know what's going okay. On. Well, we'll see you for segment three, maybe. Strange things are afoot <laughs> at the Oklahoma Welcome Center. All right. Back in a minute or three hours. See ya. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 201. And, you know, we just left you. You heard shoop shoop. Uh, <laughs> if there's no ads, if you did hear ads, great. That means we're making a little bit of cheddar so we can keep this thing going. But otherwise, we just drove another couple hundred miles yep. from the last segment recording. And we're now at a, uh, a Cracker Barrel parking lot <laughs> outside Oklahoma City. Yep. Which, if you didn't know, Cracker Barrel is kind of the staple of, like, overnight parking. It's like our favorite place because you can get a, you know, free reasonable meal definitely reasonably priced it's always yeah. so cheap and they have nice big parking lots it's and they and welcome it's overnighters it's kind of great it's free parking yep. so and if you want a snickers bar that's two feet long you can get it oh my god you need a new shirt go for it yeah yeah some new cast iron they've got it all so needless to say this episode is not sponsored by cracker barrel but if <laughs> cracker barrel is listening we will gladly take your sponsorship oh my god totally that would be amazing yeah. we do stay here a lot that's right Okay, so let's talk about wartime looting. So the third article that we're talking about is called U.S. Returns Artifacts Taken from Iraq Museum in 2003 Invasion. And as you can guess, this article is primarily about wartime looting and not just the looting that happened 20 years ago, but the sort of long-term repercussions of that looting, which mm -hmm. is what we're seeing in this article today. Yeah. So... And if you're not familiar with wartime looting, it is another another form of looting that happens. Again, not exactly under the cover of darkness, like with guys in shovels sneaking up to a monument <laughs> and digging things up. It's guys it's, with M16s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like depending on how long ago, it was probably like a tank that rolled in and took things. And that is what happened in Iraq in 2003. Another famous example of this, of course, is the Nazis looting artwork and artifacts from both individuals and Jewish families and also from institutions that they had taken control of. So, yeah, yeah. I got to say that in that scenario now I was in the military, but I was never in some sort of like combat situation like that. Mm -hmm. I was on a carrier. And if combat hits the carrier, you know that it's really hitting the fan at that point. Like yeah. combat just doesn't get that far. Right. But thinking about the people that were doing this. And the people that took these things, especially back in 2003 or any wartime conflict, mm -hmm. man, from their perspective and the, and the 
the things they're being told from on high, they are being told that this is an evil, nasty regime. We need to take them out. All the people suck. Shoot mm-hmm. everybody. And everything is going down. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're being told, right? And they, they think that. So they go in. Things get destroyed. They walk in. They see something that maybe either could be of value or maybe they just think it's cool. And they're like, well, I mean, it's going to just get firebombed. Why don't I take it? Yeah. You know, so yeah. calling it looting is a little bit, it's kind of like the spoils of war to me a little bit, but it should be returned if relationships are, you know, reestablished later on, which is what happened here. Yeah. And I think there's looting from both sides, too. Like in the case of the National Museum in Baghdad, I think most of the looting actually happened by inhabitants of the city, people that were just oh, li- right. living there, not yeah. necessarily the the foreign soldiers that came. Sure. In. Although I'm not saying they didn't do that. I don't think there's any evidence that they did, but it I mean, could have happened. I mean, that happens anytime you have like a natural disaster. Anytime you see flooding yeah. or anything, yeah. somebody's looting a, a Best Buy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like... It is different, though, because, like, in in World War II, for example, it was the Nazis that were doing the looting. The people mm-hmm. that were doing the invading were also doing the looting. But in this case, it's the people who live there. And they might have just been like, okay, I don't know where I'm getting breakfast tomorrow, but if I take this little cylindrical seal, maybe I can, you know, sell it to somebody and get breakfast for my whole family or whatever. So right. there's a part of me that kind of understands it a little bit from that perspective. And just on a, a, another quick note, when I was looking up you know, the kind of looting that happens during war. The Monuments Men came up again, which was a movie that came out about 10 years ago, I think, with George Clooney and Matt Damon. And it was all about this famous group that was tasked Mm -hmm. during World War II to save and protect the artistic and cultural treasures of the various places that they're working in. And that was such a great movie. So it makes me want to like watch it and review it on the podcast. Maybe someday we'll get to it. But so the back to the National Museum in Baghdad. Of course, this was looted in 2003. The American troops led that invasion and they failed to secure what was second on the list after the Central Bank of important places to protect in Baghdad. So they had a list of things to be protected. They had experts come in and say, you know, this is why this place is super important and needs to be protected. And the National Museum was number two on that list after going through all of the things that should be protected, right? So but they, they it weren't didn't there to—they weren't there to destroy the culture. No, they were there to—they no. ju- were there to take the regime out of power. Exactly. Yeah, they did not want destruction to happen to this museum. But whatever happened during the battle, blah blah blah, they weren't able to secure it. It was unsecured for forty-eight hours, and that's when the majority of the looting happened. Now, fortunately, the museum. And, and the employees of the museum, they hid over 8,000 artifacts in mm. anticipation of something like this. Right. And I don't know if it was about this invasion specifically or just because there's so much unrest in Baghdad overall in that time period. But there's a lot of stuff that was hidden that, that wasn't looted. So that was great. And, I mean, they really, like, preserved cultural heritage in Iraq by, by saving this stuff. It could have been, like, a huge catastrophe if they had lost all of these really important artifacts. So not actually all that many things were missing by the end of it, Mm -hmm. but among the missing pieces were thousands of tiny cylinder seals. And the reason this article was written is because on December 14th, 2022, six of these looted seals were returned to Iraq. There was a big (laughs) ceremony and just six, just six of them. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what cylinder seal is? I do not. So, you know, like when you see a... um a seal on a letter from like some Robin Hood style movie. Oh yeah, and uh-huh. they just got like wax and they oh, put their round yeah, yeah. seal. Well, uh-huh. the cylinder seals were the same thing, except mm-hmm. it's in a cylinder. Okay. So you like roll it out. 
Oh, duh, totally. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Think of the movie National Treasure. Oh, do we have One to? One of the first Always. clues was the pipe that they found in yep. the ship up in the uh, Arctic. Right. And he basically cut himself, put blood around the stem of the pipe, and then rolled yeah. it out, and That's it right. like spelled something. Yeah. That's a little more cryptic, but uh-huh. a cylinder seal is kind of along the same lines. Right. So these six seals that they returned were a follow-up to a larger artifact return of around 17,000 objects that happened in August of 2021. So I guess they're just kind of like still reeling in the stragglers, but Mm -hmm. that was the big return. And of those 17,000, more than 5,000 of those items that were sent back reportedly came from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. I wonder how they got their hands on that stuff. great. And, And this brings me to the thing that was the most interesting to me while I was reading this this series of articles is that among the returned artifacts was also a tablet from the Epic of Gilgamesh that was owned by Hobby Lobby. Nice. Now you might be asking yourself, Hobby Lobby, why is Hobby Lobby involved in acquiring antiquities? Yes. Well, it's because they have this thing called the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., And I honestly didn't really look up what it is. I can tell by the title or the name of it. It's some kind of museum to prove that the Bible is real. I'm sure. The Hobby Lobby founder or CEO, I don't know really which one. The Mm -hmm. high up person in Hobby Lobby is a like far, far, far right conservative Christian. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But when you're running a big business like that, you got a lot of power and influence. Yeah. And he uses it. I'm guessing it's Steve Green, who I have in my notes here as the president of Hobby Lobby. And he was behind the the arm of Hobby Lobby that Mm -hmm. that purchased the tablet in uh, 2014 for 1.67 million dollars and it was of course for this museum that they have in Washington DC. Now in 2019 it was seized from Hobby Lobby because officials believed it was looted from Iraq. This by the way is not necessarily related to the museum. We've kind of wandered away from the museum looting itself because it led yeah. to this bigger concept of Hobby Lobby stealing artifacts from Iraq and I just like couldn't stop reading about it. This is not the first time that Hobby Lobby and the Museum of the Bible are accused of having and transporting illegal artifacts. In 2011, several shipments of stolen artifacts were seized from their holdings. And then in 2017, they were fined $3 million and since then have been forced to return thousands of objects to Iraq and Egypt. $3 million. Yeah. That is a lot of wooden crosses. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's just ridiculous. And and Steve Green, the president, the only quote I saw from him is uh it's just gross. He says in a statement in 2020, he says he trusted the wrong people to guide me and unwittingly dealt with unscrupulous dealers. Unwittingly, huh? Didn't I ask any questions. No, I know. I'm just like I call total bullshit on that yeah. personally. It starts at the top, you know, and and shit rolls rolls downhill. And I just, I just think this this guy is just the grossest of gross. His religious beliefs aside, obviously we don't agree with them, but that's fine. But when you're gonna do this, and it's again, it's about that having the goal of doing something and just not caring how you get to it, having no care for the people that these artifacts were stolen from yeah. and the culture, and just 
just solely focusing on building this museum to display the artifacts yeah. for their purposes. And I just, I just think it's so gross. Indeed. Yeah. So back to the wartime looting, not all of it happens because of one instance, like the national museum in Baghdad. It's sort of like it grows over time in an area with a lot of unrest. And also people kind of just like, if they don't have an exposure to cultural history, they just don't necessarily care, you know? Well, yeah. And also, I mean, looting happens for one reason and one reason only usually, unless somebody's got some weird quest to, I don't know, destroy somebody else's culture, but that rarely mm-hmm. happens, yeah, right? Yeah, it's not like that. Usually it's perceived value. Yeah. So if somebody can see a value in something, whether that is a value to their ideals and proving their ideals so they can put it in their own museum of the Bible and mm-hmm. prove their own thing, or whether it has actual monetary value which is why you see in places with lots of things that people in the rest of the world want, there are places in the world where, you know, culturally there are things that people want there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of like moche masks and stuff like that from, yeah, from you know, Peru. from South America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, the people down there, they almost don't care about it, right? It's they just true. need to put yeah. food on their table for their family. Yeah. So they will find these things. They'll steal them. They'll loot them. They'll dig them up. They'll do whatever mm-hmm. they can and sell them on the open market because they're making a living doing that. Mm-hmm. You almost can't fault them for it because it's kind of their culture. It's their culture but, and it's their survival, right? Like they need yeah. to feed their families and if looting is the only way they can figure out to do it, 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 yeah. it does make it really hard to, to fault them for it for right. sure. And with Iraq specifically, like there's a whole generation of Iraqis that because of the like restrictive regime that they grew up underneath, mm-hmm. they, they haven't had any access to the like network of museums across the country. They're not learning about their own cultural history. And as a result, they're not going into archeology span Partly because it's it's controversial, yeah, and it's just too hard. They don't know a lot about it. They don't care. So it's there's sort of like a a dip in the interest in cultural history, archaeology, all those kind of things. In yeah, because of the unrest across the nation for and the if last you're, twenty years. If you're interested in like current work that's going on over there, flip on over to the Archaeotech podcast mm-hmm. because the my co-host Paul Zimmerman, who's been on this show has done several field seasons in the last two years mm-hmm. over in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And he's worked at Ur, which is a really famous site over there. And he's worked in uh, Lagash. Uh-huh. The site is called yep. Lagash. Yep. And all of that is is like right in Iraq. And he's like, the people he works with, the security forces they have, everybody is just great. They're very interested in the archaeology, mm-hmm. interested in the culture. But like you said, there isn't enough of this. Like they're interested because people are out there doing it in their yeah. backyard, right? But mm-hmm. there isn't enough of this culture like remaining. Like they need to get more of these things back there yeah. so people can, you know, have the opportunity to you see just, it for themselves. You just need to to foster the the yeah. desire to learn in the yeah. the upcoming generations, you know. And I, I'm sure it's better now because I know it's better as a whole mm-hmm. now in the country than it was 20 years ago when yeah. the the museum was raided. But right. I just hope that that continues on so that it, it's starting to change. And I will say that the article that I got, I was reading that I pulled a lot of this from was written in, t- in 2013 because it was a 10 year look back on the National Museum. And I couldn't really find any recent reporting about it. So I think it would be interesting to know how that is going for them today, too. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole kind of the point of this network and, and this show really are to teach you about 
the cultural history of various mm-hmm. cultures, yeah. various peoples right yeah. around the world, let alone your own. Mm-hmm. And we, we cover a lot in the United States. 75% of our listenership is in the United States. So we cover a lot of stuff here, but it's in the hopes that, hey, if you're out about and you see something or you, you pick something up at a at an antique show or a garage sale, you might think twice about what you're looking at. Yeah. You might think about what you have and you might start asking really important questions that are not based on selfishness or greed. Yeah, I, I think that is really well put because there's there's so many reasons why artifacts get looted. And honestly, like we just said, some of them are kind of good reasons because yeah. people need to feed their families. But... You don't have to participate in that network. And if even down to the smallest person going to an antique store and buying a bottle, if we all just stop doing that, then the, the demand falls away and people stop doing it. Listen, if you want to have fun with an artifact or or object that you're not sure was looted or not, maybe you inherited it or something like that, just go on Antiques Roadshow. At least <laughs> at least go out on TV. You know? Right. You can show it and say, Hey, yeah. I don't know what this you know, my grandpa showed it to me. I think he stole it in World War Two. I don't know. So just just have oh it be a fun gosh. story. Yeah, so. no, it's so hard. There's such a fine line. I yeah. it's it's really because I you never want to like make somebody feel bad about about a beautiful antique that they have in their family. Because obviously, every like so many people have that, and mm-hmm. and I don't want them to feel bad about that, or or go down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out where it came from. Because maybe somewhere along the line, somebody stole it from somebody. Yeah. But it is something that you do have to think about, and if there's any reason to be suspicious, that's when you should start looking into it more. Right. So. It is interesting too, though. Just one final thing before we close out. I was just kind of thinking about historical things and paperwork and documentation and stuff like that. And I recently did an episode on this show. If you're a longtime listener, then you heard it a few episodes ago, but I called it the archaeology of the APN. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if I mentioned what actually kicked off this whole thing. I started a podcast. I did it for about a year Mm -hmm. where it was just me reading my Google, my curated Google news stories. It's kind of like I've come full circle because it's exactly (laughs) what I'm doing now. But but we're talking about it rather than just reading. Well, yeah, it was literally (laughs) me reading it and it was about CRM archaeology. So I had a search going and I would literally just read whatever was in the news that week because I felt like it was important for people to be aware of that stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, around the country. You know, the thing is, uh, I've basically erased that from history. Like, it's not on the APN website anymore. That podcast is not on Apple Podcasts. It's not on Spotify. Oh, really? It's not? You can't find it anywhere. The yeah. the episodes exist on my hard drive mm-hmm. in Dropbox, uh-huh. right? So I, I completely took it off because it wasn't what I wanted. It was what kicked me off into podcasting. But really, that is the beginning of my podcast journey, the CRM Arc podcast, and therefore the APN as a whole. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we're still talking about the APN in 50 years, that the beginning provenance, if you will, of the APN will be forever lost to history <laughs> because it's it's gone. I took it away. Yeah. And but but can, it was your prerogative to do that, though, because it right. is your quote unquote my, artifacts. <laughs> but my point is, is that we can never I feel like we can never truly know the provenance. I mean, unless you've got like unless you've got an eyewitness account of Van Gogh actually painting that painting, you know, or, you know, whoever doing what then it really is just you're kind of taking it on people's words that that's what happened, mm-hmm. you know, and in discovering the true provenance of something might not be um, it's hard. Might not be, might not be possible. Yeah. yeah it's really so, hard. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been probably the longest day we've had in the RV yet of driving. We usually <laughs> do shorter days and we've got another one right up, teed up right behind it. So mm-hmm. we're trying to make our way across the country and uh, yeah, we're going to get on that tomorrow. Yep. So all right. Well, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.
Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.